When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Empire. Hello and welcome to my podcast. Do me a favor, subscribe to the John Con Report wherever you get your podcast. You can follow us at Empire Media on YouTube, A M P I R E. When you get there, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button, you know the deal. You know that it's always much appreciated. Today, I'm joined by ESPN investigative reporter Seth Wickersham. He was one of the three reporters who wrote, who reported that a well-reported article on Dan Snyder a couple of days ago on ESPN.com. It's still out there if you haven't read it yet. And it set out to answer a couple of questions. First of all, how is Dan Snyder still in charge given all the stuff we've heard? And then what could happen to maybe get him out of charge? It's like, what could... What are owners, how are they viewing it as if they wanted to remove him? How could that happen? What are these steps that could happen to get him to get to that point? Is that really a, is that a realistic possibility? If so, why? If not, why not? So that's what the story tried set out to answer. There are two of the main questions set out to answer. And Seth, of course, was deeply involved, has terrific ties to owners. One of the best sourced guys in the NFL in that area. So I wanted to bring him on to talk about that and fill you in on what's going on, and not to sit there and give some sort of, I'm, I'm not trying to play to the crowd and say, the guy's got to go. I'm just trying to give you an analysis from a reporter's perspective, somebody who's deeply involved in the story, what he thinks of the situation compared to even six months, eight months, a year ago, what he thinks, because he talks to owners all the time, where he thinks they're at compared to that time is it used to be all about just not wanting to set a precedent. Are they still there? If not, why not? And where could this go. So I'll, do, I'll be there with Seth in a minute. But first, I want to give you a couple a couple updates on injuries. Chase Young, he's going to go back and see Dr. Andrews. We weren't sure, or not, I'm not sure when he's going to go see him. We talked to Ron Revere today and on Friday, at, you know, day after game Zoom session. And at that time, he just said that he had. To, they weren't sure when he's going to go see Andrews, but that's the next step to see when he'll come back. There was some optimism by some people in the organization a couple of weeks ago, turned out to be false optimism that he would be back by now, but um, we're certainly getting very close. He's been working out before the games with his, with his defensive line mates. That's a really good sign, but don't know yet. And the first step is seeing Dr. Andrews. Now for Carson Wentz, he's going to go see a doc. He was going to go see a doctor about his hand and then his shoulder, which has been bothering him. And then we'll know more, a little bit more about that, you know, probably in a few days. Uh, just to see where he's at with things. And just a couple of things on Wentz. And I do think one of the things that would help him, but he doesn't have it anymore, is that mobility. And I think that at times certainly handicaps the offense. He just doesn't have that ability to escape situations, not a threat with his legs. And you can see maybe some of the impact of teams that have that and teams that don't. And if you don't have that, you have to be really, really good from the pocket. And right now this team is not good, good, is not very good from the pocket, not just all because of him. But, you know, but the but bottom line is it's not working. 
And so I do, I do think that the immobility certainly plays a factor in that because it's another way to generate a spark, generate some offense. And that's not what he does. So he's got to do with his arm. And so he's got to be better there. They have to be better there. And one of the things that one of the things I really like to see is you there are times where I think, and this becomes a coaching thing, and where they need to provide more answers on certain plays. For example, there was a third down, I think it was the first third down in the game, maybe a third and seven or so. The, the Bears came with, um, I think, a seven-man pressure, seven or eight-man pressure, and they basically have three defensive backs about 10 to 12 yards downfield. It's third and seven. This should be, if you get the ball out, it should be a com completion. The problem is it's an all-out blitz, and none of the receivers are turned around when Wentz is getting sacked. That just doesn't seem right, right? It doesn't seem right at all. So why isn't there in that situation a built-in, whether an audible or a hot or something, where the receivers can break off, get to the open middle of the field where it's wide open and, and take advantage of that. So my task, what I want to find out before I go and rip any or criticize people is to find out why, what's going on there. Why is this not, why is this, is this a part of the offense? If not, and I don't think it is, but if, if not, why not? And in a situation like I just described and you see green grass in the middle of the field, why aren't you running there? So, and not, to again, not to say they sh well, actually, I'm, I think you got to provide more answers. That's what I'd say. They keep waiting for the protection to get better, but it's not. And they haven't handled those blitz pressures very well at all this year. The Eagles ran some similar stuff where they're able to fool the line or fool the protection, and they do it well, but they're not protecting it well. And they've got to provide Wentz with better answers to help him out even more. If you're not, because again, you can't rely on some of these guys getting better up front. And, and I do think like having a stability at center, Tyler Larson can do that. That will help. Um, but still, you've got to provide the quarterback with some answers. And so my job over the next several days or week is to find out what is it that they're trying to do? What is it that they can do? And I'm just going to describe the situation to some of the coaches. Like I just told you that first third down, I see green grass. Why can't somebody just get there? It just feels basic. You know, and I, maybe that's the wrong word because it seems too simplistic, but it's wide open. Get there, turn around. There's a first down. Anyway, that's my job. So that's one thing. And I also want to talk for a minute before I get to Seth just about that last sequence, sequence of plays inside the 10-yard line against Chicago on Thursday. James Smith-Williams with a big deflection on second down and – is massive because Mooney's going to walk. who's going to score on a touchdown on that one if he doesn't block that. I like what the Bears did with Mooney in that play because they line him in the backfield. becomes a mismatch when you have a speedy receiver like that coming out of the backfield. And I think it's a really good red zone play. It just Smith-Williams disrupted it. Uh, second down, Derek Force, I thought, did a really nice job with awareness. And you saw it. I loved how he was. He was playing in zone. Um, and I think he was – I can't remember if it was quarters. I can't remember what the coverage was. But he's in zone inside and around the left seam on the left seam of the defense and head on a swivel, head on a swivel. Sees a guy start St. Juice is carrying a guy into his area. Nice job by him. And then and then Force takes over. And then the receiver turns back to the outside as Fields goes that way. And Force makes a terrific play. But it starts to me with his awareness. He was locked in, and it's nice to see that. Then on the last play, of course, St. Juice with the big stop. We all know that. And Nikki and I talked about this after the game and what he does. I love that short area quickness for a guy his size. I think his length also played a factor in that as well. 
But one of the things I really like about St. Jude is I think he's a very insightful interview. And I found this out last year when I talked to him a couple of times, once for the podcast, about what he sees, what he learns and all that. And he's really good at letting you know, for example, on this play, like he could, he read, you know, he knew he was probably going to come do it in and out. But also he, what he also knew is like, if he, when the, when the receiver cuts back out, St. Juice said, if, said that if he looks at the quarterback on that play, meaning St. Juice does, that's it. It's a touchdown. It's, that's all it takes for it to make a difference. So he knew he couldn't afford to do that to see when the ball's coming out. You just had to go at the receiver because he knew he was going to get the ball in that situation. And he made, he breaks in the ball really well, that much, that much difference for him. But it all comes from, I think, all those factors I just talked about. And it's not just physical, it's mental as well. And I think that's why I like that kid as a cornerback. Anyway, that's all I had to say. I do want to, I want to get to that interview with Seth Wickersham. So let's get to my conversation with ESPN investigative reporter, Seth Wickersham. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, Seth, first of all, tremendous job. And so, but I wanted to give readers a, or listeners a sense of what is that you and Don and Tisha went through to get the information you did in the story about Dan Snyder and the investigators, et cetera, et cetera, and the other owners. First of all, like how long, when, how many people did you guys talk to approximately? Well, it was well north than 30. I don't know the exact number. We didn't do a count, but um, we did add it up at one point and it was more, it was, it was around 30. And then we added some on top of that, but we didn't end up, um, I think we just put more than 30 in there. I'm not exactly sure what the number was, but it was between 30 and 40. And the filters to get the information from you, from what you, because you guys are going to hear a lot. And I know this, like you guys hear a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't get in there. How do you decide what gets in there and what are the filters that must go through to go from, hey, I heard this to I can report this? Yeah, I would say this. I'm We are so lucky. <laughs> and I'm not just saying this because we're ESPN employees, but right. you know, the jobs that we have are so lucky that we are under no pressure to deliver a story by a certain time and even really to deliver a story. Like our editors are, the trust is there to send us out to go try to report stories, knowing that maybe they don't work out. That's the way it works sometimes with some of these harder stories. Sometimes for whatever reason, it just doesn't end up working out. With Snyder, in this piece, I think we are lucky in the sense that um, Tish has been in DC. So Tisha Thompson's in DC. She's been reporting with you about a bunch of things that are going on on a on a more immediate basis. And then um, I think that when the stadium stuff started to fall apart, when you could really see that that because look, we all thought this was going to be this crazy kind of like uniquely American thing where like Dan Snyder could be going from testifying in front of Congress to being wooed by the governor of Virginia or Maryland in a bidding war to see who would give them the most public money to build him a new stadium. And when that fell apart and he really had like no other options in terms of a stadium outside of just paying for it all himself somehow, that's to me when 
the flare lights went on, that this was really something, my repertorial antenna went up, that this was really something worth pursuing. Because as you know, that's the language that owners speak. Right. The hardest thing for owners to get a stadium built. So few of them are like Stan Kroenke, who can write a check for the land and write a check for the stadium and pay for any overages. It just doesn't work that way for most of these guys. And so that made it really interesting to me because I knew that when he, when the stadium essentially became a non-option in that region, I knew that his peers, his owners, the ones who ultimately will decide a bunch of this stuff with him would be enraged by it and upset because that's going to cost them money. Right. And I'm going to get to that in a minute because that's a major part of the story too. But then like when you guys, when you're reporting it, and again, you're right. Like I've been involved in stories at ESPN. We were last year trying to figure out some stuff. We'd have meetings after meetings to say, is there anything there? Is there anything there? And the answer sometimes like, well, we know this, but it's more hearsay and stuff that you wouldn't feel comfortable reporting. So it never sees the light of day. Now, some of that is actually coming back into this story. Because, you know, because I, I, you see stuff, but so how many, how many editors are going through it and, and yeah. attorneys? I mean, there's, there's a lot of layers to, before it gets to the public um, domain. Sure. There's a process and it's a rigorous process and it's very in depth, but like, um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time here gathering information and then going back out to vet it and seeing how many people you have, because I've been, I've, I've, I've hung out with you at times or talk to you at times where you talk about things you hear or whatever, but you're not quite sure. That's not how these stories work. I think that like what happens is you go out you meet with people, you go out to dinner with an executive or an owner or whatever it might be. You try to get into an, an area where you can be comfortable and talk for a long time. So you can ask a lot of follow-ups and try to get a lot of information. Then you take all that information and see how much of it jives with talking to other people about it and what they've heard. And, you know, Don Van Natta came in and, and, you know, any story he's involved in, he makes better. And we worked a a lot together on the ownership world and the palace intrigue. And and I think that we work well together for a host of reasons, but one of them is that we have different people. And so that just helps so much in trying to like put a story like this together in that um and then you know eventually we kind of come to the point where you're writing a you're trying to put together a story and then it goes through drafts of that story you have normal editorial feedback you have fact checking you have uh obviously like you you know it's it's vetted many times and then of course you have the moments when um, the team sort of wants to provide its perspective on whatever um, pieces of reporting that you bring to them. And, you know, that's where you work in their stuff into the story and make sure that the word choices are precise and that, you know, it feels fair. And so um, that's kind of how it all kind of comes together. What surprised you most in the reporting of this from your end? That's a great question. How aware everybody was that Snyder had told people that he had collected so much dirt, bragged about the dirt and seemed defiant at a moment where he he seemed weakened and how, um, how unsurprised all the people were from owners to league, whatever, you know, that, that 
you know, even Snyder had bragged about deploying private investigators, just how, like, literally, I talked to one owner, and um, I asked if he had heard about that. And he said, yes. And I asked what his reaction was when he heard about it. And he goes, I wasn't surprised. And, um, you know, again, that's something that Snyder denied through the team spokesman, the law firm denied having any awareness of it. Um, and, you know, maybe he hasn't. And that's something that we get at in the story. And maybe these are just, you know, scare tactics or a bluff. But um, I think that was the most interesting thing is just, I think that if you had brought almost any other name with that kind of piece of reporting where you're saying, hey, have you heard, I'm just making this up, that, uh, you know, George McCaskey <laughs> is, <laughs> is following owners with private investigators. I mean, people would be completely shocked. And with Dan Snyder, it was not only like, yeah, we're all aware of that. And no, we're not shocked at all. Yeah, And so, you know, you talk to owners. You have always had good ends with the owners. Where have you, how, what is your outlook on what this means for Snyder from maybe six to eight months ago, what they might do compared to where it is now? How much has it changed if it has? Like they're angry. And what we reported in our story about him losing Jerry Jones and about how Jerry Jones um, has told Dan personally that he might not be able to protect him. That is that stuff's accurate. And um, I don't know who's the most powerful owner. You know, we had a line in the story where there was an executive joking that it was Dan Snyder, who is the most powerful owner, because the owners don't want to do anything right. take any on him. But. Jerry is definitely one of the most influential ones and he tends to get his way when he wants something. And um, I think that this story isn't the reason why they might act on Dan. I would never think that, but I do think that it's another thing that they're frustrated about that's out in the open. And um, I, I do think that this can't go on forever as it is. We reported the story that Snyder's, kind of game plan is to run out the clock and bet that Congress changes hands and that the Mary Jo Wright report, you know, takes so long to put together that nobody ends up really caring or whatever it might be. He's moved on. Um, he might be right. I don't know. But I think that owners, I think that you'll be able to get 24 owners who will say that right now things as they're going, it's not sustainable and it's not something that we want. And I don't know what the action will be, but I do think that it'll come to some sort of resolution and an action. So the owners are meeting this coming week or next week. Yeah. So what do you think does, does it come up there? What do you think it's, you know, what do you think happens there? Do you, do you That's know? That's a weird, you would think so, but even in the privileged sessions, so that's all the executives are kicked out for those sessions. That is just owners. Or if they delegate an executives, you know, it can be the executive, whatever. I think that like, Seattle used to do that all the time. Paul Allen would never show up for meetings, so he would send his executive in his place. But um, they don't bring up Dan. And one of the owners told us, like, Roger doesn't look like he wants to touch this thing. They don't bring up Snyder in those sessions. And I reported on it a year ago where Tanya Snyder apologized to the owners in the privilege session. She read it off of her phone, which was annoying to people who felt like it was a little insincere. But... In that privilege session, her apology came up, uh, the Gruden emails and Mark Davis came up, and 
Then Jeff Pash came up, or Jeff Pash, the league's general counsel, got in front of the owners and he said, Stan Kroenke is not inclined to pay the settlement with the city of St. Louis for $790 million. And we're going to have to figure out a way to divide that. And he, you know, maybe he'll sue, who knows. And that was by far (laughs) the thing that they focused on the most, not Snyder. And so even in subsequent meetings, he just has not come up in those sessions. And we asked why a lot of people say, well, it's because Tanya is always there. So how can you have this frank conversation about, the team if she's always there other people say hey she wasn't at the meetings in atlanta in may and it felt weird to like have the discussion without her there and unable to defend the team all of it just reeks of people who don't want to have that that sort of confrontational type of meeting so again like over the last you know when this when all this stuff first broke from the washington post stories a couple of years ago and it first broke kept hearing bad precedent bad precedent wouldn't want to vote him out wouldn't want to vote him out because of that and even up until, you know, again, six to eight months ago, that was the thought. Do you think that how many you know, it's hard to say a number, but do you do you think a lot have moved on from that precedent and just are ready for it to be done? Uh, yes, I do. And but I don't know how. And I think that, like, it's the and what that's the, right. That's the thing. You know, I think that if they could figure out a way for Snyder to move on without a fight, they would love that. I don't think that he's inclined to do that, though. Yeah, and so they're not exactly sure, you know, how to handle this. But I do think that one of the interesting things about owners and ownership circles is that we think about them as all these kind of CEOs and head of their own enterprises. And that's true, they are. But when they're in that group, <laughs> Groupthink tends to prevail. Like there's very few votes that are like, you know, 17 on one side and 15 on the other that are really close. It just, that stuff doesn't happen that much. They all tend to vote in the same direction. And um, they like to be slow about things. Like the NFL owners are, are kind of about the status quo and they like to, be methodical except when there's a big profit to immediately been be made then they move really quickly (laughs) but um they they tend to be slow and so i think that like whatever it is when this does finally come to a head and i i do think that it will i just i don't think that anybody thinks this this can go on um i think that the vast majority of owners will be um happy with the result so that they can cast their vote and feel okay about it. I think that like, if they were just to like call a vote questioning Snyder's ownership on Tuesday, for instance, if they didn't get 24 voters, which is the requisite that they would need, Dan would find out everybody (laughs) who voted for him. You know? So I just think that like, they want to be very as careful as they possibly can about however this happens, whenever it happens. And there are a couple of ways that, you know, for people who want them out, there are a couple of ways that you guys laid out in the story very well. I know Tisha played a big role in that part too. Um, but the debt waiver limit, yeah, and the transfer of power. Can you kind of explain both those um, and how that would work? Well, the debt limit thing is interesting, and it relates to the stadium um, in which Tisha Thompson did you know some fantastic reporting, just showing exactly how that fell apart. Um, 
you know, as we said earlier, most owners can't afford to buy the stadium. So they're reliant on loans. And often they get loans from big banks and even from the league office. There's the G4 program, which loans owners who are building a stadium $200 million. And, but the league also has strict requirements on how much debt a team can carry, an owner can carry. And so what happens in all these stadium situations is they get these debt limit waivers. And Dan Snyder got one a year ago. He got a debt limit waiver for $450 million so that he could buy out his limited partners. These are almost always rubber stamp types of moves. They don't, you know, have long debate sessions about these things. They almost always approve them. But there have been owners, especially on the finance committee, who have discussed not allowing Dan Snyder to borrow more money to build a stadium. They know that he's essentially cornered in D.C., and they know that if he were to try to build a stadium, even under good circumstances, he would need probably need a debt limit waiver. And they've talked about not permitting that as a way to kind of force his hand and maybe so that he would like transfer to, to Tanya who, look, they would love to just have like a clean sale, get $6 billion, whatever it is for that team and, you know, start new with, with that fan base. But the idea of a permanent transfer to Tanya is something that isn't perfect, but something that people would be willing to deal with because they, she's, I think she's enjoyed being rep, you know, representing the team in those sessions I think that she enjoys kind of being the face of the team at those sessions. People respect her, even if like they got on, you know, she got on their nerves when she read the apology off of her phone. But I think they look at that as a much more appealing resolution than, you know, Dan being there in the event that, that he indeed, his goal is to transfer the team to his children. But even in that case, I mean, if it's still in the family, how does that really cut him out? Great question. And it's something that we wrote about, you know, in the story where if he's around, can that ever change? Can the team ever change? We had that section about is Jason Wright really empowered to be able to create the, the change that he wants in the face of all of these executives leaving all the time? And of course, there's Dan. Can he help himself? How do you even govern that? <laughs> um those are great questions, and I don't know if anybody has great answers for them at the moment. And then the other thing is that you brought up Stan Kroenke, and that's coming to a head as well. Again, how much will that continue to overshadow all of this, do you think? Well, yeah. So and for the listeners to try to understand that, I mean, that's something that I wrote about a year ago at the league meetings where the city of St. Louis sued the NFL saying that they had violated um, contracts that they'd essentially signed with the city when they allowed the team to move and violated its own relocation policy. And um, it, uh, you know, that, that lawsuit did not go away. Usually whenever a team moves, a lawsuit kind of flares up and then it fizzles, but this did not go away. And um, they ended up reaching a settlement agreement for $790 million. And I think every owner thought that Stan Kroenke was going to pay that because the morning in January of 2016 in Houston, the, at, at, I think it was the, uh, the Intercontinental Hotel, but I, I might be mistaken. But that morning when they were going to vote on L.A., every owner involved had to sign an indemnification agreement agreeing to 
absolve their fellow owners of any litigation that would come up from this. And Kroenke signed it. Apparently, it was a very poorly worded one. And so Kroenke believes that he did nothing wrong and he shouldn't have to pay this entire amount. And everybody else messed it up and he's not going to be on the hook for it. There hasn't been an easy resolution to that. Owners do not like writing big checks for things, especially when they're used to receiving those big checks. And um, we will see what happens. I mean, um, they're supposed to vote on a resolution for it this week, and I don't know how it's going to go, but we'll see. Can that? How could that influence? Because you said you said like they may have to write a big check. Then you look over here and say, "Hey, we could be getting more checks if you did a better job over here." Could that have a direct, some sort of trickle down impact on the Snyder situation? I don't think so because the Snyder situation is just so different. Whereas, like when these owners voted to allow the Chargers, the Raiders, the Rams to leave, they get what's called a relocation fee. I think right. that it was $550 million that the owner who moves has to pay the fellow owner. So divide that by 31, whatever it is, they net out. So that's a good amount of money that they got just for a vote. <laughs> it's a pretty good return, yeah. right? Whereas like the money that they would get from a new stadium in DC, I think would help the overall pie, but I don't think it's quite as simple as hey, we got this check because these teams moved. And now because of this lawsuit and the settlement, we have to write a check out. I don't think it's quite apples to apples. Why is Roger so afraid of Dan, do you think? It seems like that. He just does not seem eager to confront this. And I think that he inherently is more comfortable handling integrity of the game type of issues as he has over the years, you know, with the Patriots, I mean, Patriots, the Robert Kraft, one of his closest confidants and, and key allies, he's fined them first round picks three times during their dynasty run three times for rules violations. And yet when it comes to other things that Robert Kraft has gotten in trouble for off the field, the league just doesn't really want to move. And um, as much as they talk about owners, being held to the highest standard, it is just different. And um, the other thing is that he works for the Snyders. Right. <laughs> and, <That's true. laughs> you know, I don't think that I, nobody I talked to said that Roger Goodell is out there trying to whip votes and it would be inappropriate. I think if he did, I think that like he takes the temperature of people and he knows the pulse of what's going on, but he's been so clear that this is an owner driven decision. Even if, as we report in the story, he wants Dan gone and he wants all of this off his plate. Did you talk to any owners who really have a firm support for Dan? No. <laughs> there you go. If, if you had to link, this is hard to do. And I, I, talk, maybe I, I, did, I have talked to people who see varying degrees of um, – what should be consequences for all of these various scandals? You know, I've talked to people who, who, for instance, you bring up this, um, you're, you know, you, we talk about this, this ticket thing that, that came up with the former employee right. in Congress and, you know, is he taking money that should be going to his owners? I haven't seen anyone in the ownership circles who's that upset about that and actually is convinced that he might be doing it. There's a lot of there's there's a lot of checks and balances in place within the league office that was actually set up by Brian LaFamina, who ended up leaving the league to work for Dan Snyder before he was fired six months later. But 
to set up checks and balances so that teams are accountable in terms of paying into the pot. And sometimes teams don't have accurate accounting and they end up owing in. But I don't think anybody looks at it like something nefarious. And I even like talk to owners who really don't see that as being that big of a deal. I think at the end of the day, the things that are the big deal is the accumulation of negative headlines. The fact that a cherished fan base and valued market is so dispirited with, with, you know, the state of the team and the state of the owner and the fact that the salvation was going to be his ability to get that stadium. And at this point, nobody knows how there's a path forward on that. I think those are the, all the things. Then the last thing too, is, you know, when, when you guys talk to people, everybody's got some level, not about an agenda, but a reason why they want to talk now. Mm. A lot of people were talking now. Why do you think that is? Yeah. I, you know, people bring that up sometimes where they say, Hey, this was like a coordinated thing and they use Seth, Don and Tisha to get it out. And yeah. you guys talked to too many people for that to be. I the case. wish that were the case. Yeah. It yeah, so that's funny. definitely not the case. <laughs> you know, I think that people react to information. Like, first of all, yeah. Don and I, Tisha to a lesser extent, because we haven't worked with her on these stories, but Don and I have been swimming in these waters for a long time. We've right. been a lot of these owner stories for a long time. So when we bring something to someone, I think that they know that we have serious business to discuss. Right. And then I think they react to information like, Hey, w- we've heard this. We heard that such and so this person said this in that meeting. Is that what you heard? Why do you think they said that? Blah, 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 but whatever it might be. That's what people react to much more than like, Hey, they're trying to get, you know, an agenda across or whatever, because um, nobody was, no, there was not a single person out of the 30 some people that we talked to who raised their hand and said, Hey, if you're ever doing a Dan Snyder story over the years, please call me. It never happened. (laughs) No. And I apologize. I do have one more and and I'm not asking for a guess as to the outcome, but where do, where do you think this goes based on your analysis of talking to people? Where do you think this goes for Dan over the next year, couple of years? I just cannot see a situation where he's allowed to be a face of the team or a primary decision maker in any way. And I don't know how they get to there. I really don't. I don't think they know. I don't see how it could happen. I think that the Mary, the Mary Jo White report will come out and they will react off of that. But I do think that whatever they react off of, I think it's like the thing that they need to say justification to to cast their vote. Seth, I appreciate your time. Great stuff. Great job on the reporting. And that's why I want to let people know some of the process. So it's not just some, hey, we heard this, let's put it out there. It's all that goes into it. And there's so much stuff. As long as that story was, trust me, it could have been three times the size based on what you guys have. And but you but you can't vet everything. So there you go. I appreciate you joining me. Thanks a lot. Yeah, man. You know, it's a good it's a good feeling when you're cutting good stuff, you know, where good right. stuff isn't being thrown in the story. But I appreciate it. It's always good to talk to you. And um, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Seth for joining me. And thank you, as always, for listening. I appreciate it. And I will be back. I'm The next podcast will be out sometime early next week. So I will talk to you next time.